you know, the good of the patriarchy, um, you know, fundamentally, you could say it's that it's the culmination of Jesus's earthly teaching ministry. You know, before he goes, gets crucified and teaches them how to pray, you know, our father, you know, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Like God is the ultimate patriarch. Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, here as usual with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of Christ Anglican Church in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. How are you guys doing today? Great, Great. Nick. Yep. Matt, I need an interpretation from you and an exegesis, if you will, of a picture Anne recently posted on the internet. The caption reads, Matt reads Prince Caspian (laughs) in the presence of solitaire and discord. Now you yourself do not appear in the picture and every kid seems to be on a computer of some kind. Uh, I curious world wants to know, is this some kind of evening tradition in the Kennedy house? You read out loud and everyone ignores you. (laughs) Well, they don't, they've never like sat huddled, staring, adoring me at their father. They've all, they've always been doing, you know, cards cards online or something while they're reading i'm like that too i can't listen to something unless i'm drawing or doing something with my hands or or, or even you know playing on a computer or something and this is what they're all doing they're all playing their computer games and they're listening you know because they know they know the story they can give you the lines we've okay. read it we've read prince caspian like 20 times way too you do do you do different voices or is it just like a monotone or i don't do voices but, but i do <laughs> i'm i'm okay i'm an okay reader i've, I've done it for literally this is like my 20 30th reading of prince caspian so do you I, just I read that one or do you read the whole series through? <laughs> that's all this it's the only one worth reading why i do it in advance of prince caspian <laughs> i know it so well but I'm, i won't do that you should you, offer to go to read at your local library for the kids. <laughs> but but where your clericals that's right <laughs> Well, we've spent several weeks recently on the pod talking about biblical manhood and womanhood, the so-called creation of those categories, whether or not Jesus was like John Wayne, and the extent to which white male evangelicals have ruined both the church and the world. And we, along with some of our Stand Firm friends, have tried to respond to those assertions about the evils of the, scare quotes, patriarchy. Now, in order to put a bow on the whole discussion, although who am I kidding, we'll no doubt find ourselves back here before too long. But in order to put a bow on it, we thought we might be good to take some time on this episode to talk about the actual good of the patriarchy, although maybe we decide that's not a term worth trying to rehabilitate. Maybe we're talking about the good of God's plan for male headship in the church and in the home, what Claire Smith called God's good design. So, guys, what's good about God's good design? Well, I mean, it, it, again, and I think it's important to make that distinction that you made already between patriarchies as it's been corrupted by 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 sin and uh, and self interest and selfishness, and patriarchy as it was originally designed. I mean, if you look at uh, Genesis uh, two, um, God gives he makes Adam from the dust. He gives Adam his commands regarding the tree of, of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, he creates Eve to be his, his, his wife. He joins them together. And then the implication is that he is responsible as, as the one who is created and given the command to help his wife understand what the command 
is and and also to work with her to to enjoy the created world uh, with her as his helpmeet. Um, yeah, um, and and the and there's no there's no image image between right. them. There's no sense that he wants being that them. they are in fact the created image of God on earth. Meaning the yeah. the relation between the two was complementary, self sacrificial. Um, eternally loving. I mean, like we described the interrelations of the Trinity, um, that's where we get um, the picture of what men and women were like. Um, right. And then before. Jesus, of course, goes back there in, in, in Matthew 19 to point to the model, that as the model for all marriages. And then Paul goes back there in Ephesians 5 to say that marriage is really about Christ and his church. And we made the point last week that's not an egalitarian relationship by any means, Christ and his church, nor is it in any way an abusive relationship, nor is it in any way a tyrannical relationship. Right. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a relationship where Christ lays down his life for his church. He, he, he nourishes, protects, guides, yes, governs, but, but also sacrifices himself for, for the church. So a well, a well uh, insofar as our marriages reflect the relationship between Christ and his church, I, I fail to see if there's anything bad at all about, about patriarchy as, as created. Yeah. Well, that's what we get into the, the argument because, you know, when we look at the, with the curse and the, in the fall, I mean, like we talked about last week uh, with respect to that um, book, that where you locate the entrance of um, of headship um, and even help help meet ship. I don't know how you would pronounce that, but, you know, where where you where you uh, position that in the biblical narrative will determine um, what you see is the redemptive aspect of Christ, particularly in the relationship between him and the church, as Paul talks about in Ephesians five. And so. You know, when we look at um, post Genesis three world, then we shouldn't be surprised that all of the good um, that we um, can can sort of retrospectively see and surmise from what the garden relationship would be like has been has been tainted, has been um, corrupted, you know, has been shattered in many ways. I mean, our relationship to God, first and foremost, then our, by extension, our relationship to each other, for our neighbor, you know, i.e. The, the men and woman. Then uh, the relationship to nature, you know, dominion and cultivation of the garden became um, exhortation. I mean, um, exploitation and and destruction. You know, I mean, and on down the list. You know, parents begin lording over their children, um, enmity between brothers. I mean, we see in the entire, you know, very shortly after Genesis three, um, the dissolution of all that was pronounced good uh, becomes becomes sinful and broken. And this is this is why. When we look at the history of male-female relations, particularly outside of the church, but also uh, uh, lamentably and regrettably inside the church, because people have been sinners, you know, seemingly used to set peccator, sinners and justified within the church, we see that one of the primary effects of the curse um, as it continues to be found, you know, as far as the curse is found, is um, this enmity between men and women, this this pitched battle that is, um, you know, look, look at what this woman you gave me got us in trouble, God, you know, and it wasn't me, the serpent deceived me, says Eve. And so we're, we're in this, you know, he said, she said, 
it's not my fault, their fault. It's not her fault, his fault. It's not anyone's fault because if because we are guilty, afraid, and ashamed people now. And so the easiest person to take it out on um, is our quote unquote neighbor, which in many people's case throughout history has been, um, you know, uh, a close family relation, um, you know, whether that's a parent, a child, and then ultimately a spouse. And so um, that we, we see the history of the world writ large as the fracturing of the image of God on earth, i.e. this relation between men and women is then unsurprising that the, the restitution and the reconciliation, oh, excuse me, the reconciliation of that image takes place precisely at this, um, at the, the, the sort of restoration of the relationship between men and women. That's why Paul makes such a big deal out of it. That's why, you know, I tell people in my pre-marriage counseling all the time, like, there's nothing else in the Bible that is so that is directly associated with the image of Christ in the church, except for the husband and wife analogy, which is why we we get dressed up if we can. You know, we don't have to, but we take a we pump the brakes and we take a breath and we say, all right, you know, this is a big deal. And so, you know, the good of the patriarchy, um, you know, fundamentally, you could say it's that it's that it's the culmination of Jesus's earthly teaching ministry. You know, before he goes, gets crucified and teaches them how to pray, you know, our father, you know, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Like God is the ultimate patriarch um, as revealed by Jesus to the world. And so at the fundamental level, when we are rail against the patriarchy, we're railing against the fatherhood rule of God himself, you know, by his own designation. Now, again, that doesn't mean that he's a, a bearded old man in the sky or some sort of, um, you know, sort of uh, wooden interpretation like that. But by his own designation, he has revealed himself as this and then stamped upon creation um, this this image of of the way that he um, lovingly provides, creates, and protects the world. And so that's in, in, a, in a nutshell, you know, kind of the broad brush picture of what, what you are asserting at the very least when the Bible talks about, about the patriarchal, the fatherhood of God. You know, and again, it's not a base amorph, um, uh, sort of anthropomorphizing in the way that like the Mormons might do it or something, but it is something that he has revealed as to how he wants to be understood. And then by extension, the creation of men and women is an extension of that eternal relation. So let me get this straight. Are you guys saying that the first good thing about God's good design is that God himself designed it that way? <laughs> yes. Okay, okay. So if we believe in an almighty God and further believe in an almighty God who actually speaks into the world and reveals his design for it, it would be a good thing that we would submit ourselves to the design that he has placed upon the world in which we inhabit. Yes. Yes, of course. I mean, in so far as the world is conformed to God, right. That's a, that's a good thing. Um, I would say, but, you know, but even if I, Let's, let's pretend I've never read the Bible. I'm not a Christian. I'm just looking at the world as it is. I think there's a pretty good natural things are nat naturally fall out in in sort of the way the Bible describes. This although, is what I wanted fallen, to ask you next, anyway. Okay, in, in a fallen in a fallen way, but in in the same way. So I don't know too many cultures where men aren't doing the more physically laborious work and aren't responsible for protection of the family and aren't responsible for doing, yeah, doing the, the labor that requires the muscular effort and aren't too many, in too many 
societies where women aren't caring for the children and doing the things that are necessary to nurture and nurture them in a, in a comfortable space. And, you know, because their husbands are doing the fields or wherever they might be, making sure that when they get home, they have something to eat and they're not, um, they don't have to make their own, they have to spend two hours over a fire pot stirring their own mush. They can eat this. It's, it's just naturally the way our bodies are designed. Women clearly are made for the nurture, upkeep, upkeep and nurture of children and men are made for the protection of women and children. That's, and for the provision. I, and that comes out of the anatomy it comes out of the anatomy, which is pre-fall, which is pre-fall, and and that's of course that's worked its way out in various cultures in fallen ways. So, the men who should be protecting and providing for their families have often abused their wives and beat their children and and acted as sinners. Women who should be nurturing the children and caring for their husbands have um, often, you know, beat their children and cheated on their husbands. It's, it's, it's or killed them and or killed them in the womb. I mean, in the womb, whatever it might be. Yeah. Right. So, so, so yes, patriarchy and uh, as it, as it's played out in fallen systems is going to be played out in a fallen way, but you see the basic outline and that's why biblical, and I don't, I don't, I don't mind the word patriarchy at all. Biblical patriarchy or biblical complementarianism, whatever you want to use it, takes the, that already existing, but broken system and, and runs it through the biblical grid and says, let's restore this. Yeah, I mean, if you look at first, we've spoken on this before, but, you know, it says, well, greatly, will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, right? Now, I mean, we don't know exactly how painful um, uh, childbirth was in, in the garden. I mean, you know, we, we assume it wasn't as painful because it had been greatly multiplied, but it wasn't simply a physical multiplication of the pain because part of the curse not simply was the pain of childbirth, but it would be this word desire uh, will be for your husband, which is, it's not, as we've pointed out before, like a hubba hubba desire, you know, of like a, a romance novel or something that, that was um, better. If that were that's, <laughs> it was this, this, so, so you had this deep resentment, you know, it's unbelievable to see the modern uh, feminist movement is essentially articulating a, um, a, a, a sort of putting words, putting 21st century words to what the curse, you know, thousands of years ago um, was levied out on um, Adam and Eve in that I will resent the fact, according to the curse, the woman will resent the fact that she has to have children because the desire will be for her husband. And the desire is not a sexual desire, but a desire to be like or to at least to be less encumbered than she otherwise would be by this painful childbirth that has now been multiplied in light of the curse. And so, again, the, 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 the sacrament of the overthrow of the biblical worldview, of the complementary worldview, the patriarch, whatever you want to say, the sacrament of that overthrow is, in fact, abortion which makes perfect sense because that is the heart of the curse is that this child that is that is unwanted uh encumbrance um uh you know takes away my possibilities you know takes away my um my health or my beauty or whatever the case may be in light of the curse i mean again in light of men that don't take care of it that won't protect you that won't you know fulfill their responsibility with respect to creating life at the same time that this will be the height of of um of contempt, of the height of um, resentment is the fact that I am forced to be the one to have this child. On the flip side, you have men who uh, the curse is that they will attempt to find meaning and purpose and, and life by the sweat of their brow, you know, by what, by what they accomplish, by what they can bring out for the world. And, 
And good luck with that, because at the end, and from your dust into dust, you shall return. So you have this, this sad picture of what was the image of God on earth, uh, now constituted by a resentful woman who is subjugated to the more powerful whims and desires of her husband, who will not take care of her in the way that he needs to, because he will be a self-serving brute, you know, um, and as a result of sin. And that is the breakdown of, of the world as a result of the calamity of sin. And so we see that then it translates into Cain and Abel, you know, then it translates into, so the, it takes your, your, the image of God, it, it, uh, men and women, uh, husbands and wives, parents and children, towns, cities, nations, the world, you know, and then Jesus comes to set the bone right at the very heart. Uh, you know, he comes to re, um, set the atom that had been split when, when sin entered the world between men and women. And we see the, the resolution of things, the, the restoration of things. And just as the initial split in sin was so powerful and destructive, so is the, the redemptive uh, restoration of Jesus's um, reconciliation between God and man. And it begins with the, with the reconciled heart between a man and a woman. And that's, that's the, that's the story. That's the argument. And of course there are counter arguments to that. And we have whole books written against that idea, but but that is the one that has propelled and has animated the Christian church for 2000 years to a certain degree, uh, you know, with some variations on it and has um, has rightly chastised men, Christian men, when they haven't upheld their um, their responsibilities to their wives and children, rightly chastised our Christian women, likewise, and children. And and the the narrative framework, as it were, the um the the social imaginary, as Carl Truman put it, um, has been very uh, fruitful. You know, literally, in the fact that children have come, but also there has been great, there has been and will continue to be great and beautiful pictures of self-sacrificial, redeeming um, love in the in the image of God through the complementary love of a man and a wife. Of, of and that's that's just where that's that's the good of patriarchy is that that overarching vision um, that people some people have abused but many people have have found great life and joy within. It's interesting to hear you refer to that as the history of the church for these two thousand years with a few flexes here and there because one of the critiques that we're hearing a lot recently is that complementarianism is actually a recent innovation, that it's something that men in their quest for power invented and put on top of the scriptural witness and um, reading some interesting articles about how maybe perhaps the exact opposite is true, that the, as you said, that this has been the consistent witness of the church, i.e., for instance, an all-male priesthood basically until yesterday, and it's the egalitarian idea that is more newly innovative. How, how do you guys see those two ideas playing out over, over the course of history and time? Yeah, two things. I, I, uh, reading Beth Allison Barr's book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, she, she emphasizes the role of women in the Middle Ages uh, and in the, the church in the Middle Ages and how women had were seen as, well, people who could preach, um, prophesy, uh, people who were doing or, or attributed to him, were attributed miracles and who held leadership positions and, and uh, as abbesses in monasteries. But what's interesting about that section, and I don't know, it, it kind of defeats her point, 
she does she has the she had the honesty to mention to include it but it kind of defeats her point but she she notes that the more the woman ceased to be like a woman the more she was counted as having the authority to speak so a woman who was not with a family who wasn't married who had cut off the sexual function um who had become more and more involved in intellectual work was seen as less female and therefore given more more, more authority to speak which which is interesting and paired with with the idea that in the middle ages that you know and we don't think that's just, this is unique to the middle ages but that yes if god wants to speak through a prophet he, he can of course call a, a a woman to do that he said he did that with deborah um, and so in the Middle Ages, that was this kind of idea that that continues. I don't know that it did, but that's that was the idea. But I, in all of those cases, you need to rec- the, the 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 point. Even Barr makes it is that this was this was the this was unique. It was this was the uh, the exception, not the the rule. This was the this was not the norm. This was the, the women stepping out of the norm. And and so it wasn't that the system was different necessarily. It was just the system uh, had different anom- anomalies. Uh, going back further, I mean, uh, people uh, people who are who argue for the, the recent invention of complementarianism will talk about uh, women like Phoebe or the uh, Junius, who may or may not have been a woman. We don't even know that that she was a woman. Uh, but in Barr's book, it was you know, she is clearly a woman, and not only that, but she's a capital A apostle, and the patriarchy has silenced that text. Um, and so she goes, she, she puts a lot of value on Romans 16, where a number of women are, are mentioned in various roles. Phoebe, who delivers Paul's letter to the Romans, to the Roman church, and who may have had a, a role in explaining what it meant, which is what you might expect from a, a, a person delivering a message. And then again, Judy the Apostle, and Phoebe being a deacon was shut up by the modern patriarchy. But if you really look back in the history of the exposition of those texts, it's a lot more cloudy than than bar than bar gives gives room for, and there there really isn't the evidence that she claims that there is for a prominent uh, normative teaching role for women in, in the early church. There's certainly not, it's certainly not there in the, in the New Testament, um, and it's 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 very scant if there is anything really to substantiate that in the. Uh, early church outside the Bible. The problem I have um, with all of this, Matt, um, and I agree with with what you're saying there too, is that if in, in order to buy into um, sort of Barr's thesis, you have to assume that there was a concerted uh, calculating conspiracy by men, powerful men, for 4,000 plus years since the Epic of Gilgamesh was discovered to to subjugate and oppress women, that this zero-sum game, that there was nothing to gain from a um, relationship between the two. There was never a division of labor that may have um, come down from, you know, husbands and wives. There was never the recognition that that perhaps at the very least for nine months, if not for longer, there would need to be an emphasis on um, protecting women from, you know, from the world by men um, and, and down on down the line. 
that there was this, there is this, this, in my opinion, cynical zero sum power game that takes for granted all of the wonderful things that men and women have been able to do together, even under this quote unquote sinful patriarchal uh, world. And so, you know, to say that all of a sudden in the 1960s and 70s that the truth had finally been revealed and that everything that preceded it was false is to call into question, you know, the really the goodness of anything that had been accomplished by this this supposedly terrible and sinful relation that was that was based upon a sort of a version of male headship in the world. And again, we can be grateful that certain parts of that, as with certain parts of all culture, have evolved and and been, um, you know, as, as times change, people learn from the past and people have, have uh, advanced in their knowledge. But the fundamental argument to the Bible, which they're pushing back on, is that there is a complementary differentiation within roles and capabilities and responsibilities for men and women. Like we can argue till we're in blue in the face about what those actual roles, responsibilities, and capabilities are, and still be in the realm of, well, there are different roles, different, you know, the complementary as the, as the um, Denny Burke says, you know, that the ontological value and the sort of redemptive reality of uh, brothers and sisters in Christ um, under the cross is unquestioned um, amongst anyone. No one is making an argument about the relative uh, value of men and women. We're talking about their, their roles, responsibilities, and capabilities. And if you are going to argue making that argument, but that's the argument we're accused of making. Well, it's in part because if you have a, like, for instance, if you make a, if you take the role of uh, headship, you know, within marriage, for instance, as you see a, a role of responsibility that, um, uh, that Paul lays out in Ephesians 5, well, then any sort of submission is considered to be a inferior or a lesser than relationship. Um, and so that is by default and a, a relation of sort of master-slave, as it has been put most baldly by some. But, um, but at the very least, it is seen any sense of subjugation or any sense of, of authority is seen as a ontological value difference, not just a relational one. And this is, um, this is one of the real points of contention is that can you be, you know, is it necessarily a point of inferiority to be submissive to an authority figure? You know, that's a question. And I think that, you know, the classic, Christian example, I mean, a statement of that would be no, you know, that the the subjugation of children to parents does not make the parents ontologically more valuable or somehow better than the child, but there is a relation there that is um, divine, uh, um, ordained by God to for a certain time um, that is good and, and necessary and, and right. I do think that it's no coincidence that you talk about actually it's the 1960s and 70s ish if we might use a broad brush where this all of a sudden realization that the way the church has interpreted these scriptures all along has been wrong and not only wrong but the exact opposite of how they need to be interpreted this is not to put too fine a point on it the exact coincidence of the rise of things like critical theory which want to divide everybody into an oppressed or oppressor group. And so it's very clean here to divide women into an oppressed group in the church. And so right along that time, 60s, 70s and 80s and onward, you start seeing this drive to take power away from the supposed oppressors, men, and give it to the supposed oppressed women. And we, if we need to reinterpret scripture to do that, then so be it. That's the good work of justice. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that 
it's important to make a distinction between the types of ways that people are arguing um, for things like women's ordination or uh, uh, egalitarianism. There, there's a school of thought within within the ACNA even, sadly, which is very much akin to that, very much akin to the liberation way of thinking. So there is kind of, a, it's called the tra trajectory argument, where if you look at the scriptures that you see, there's a trajectory toward liberation. And- Yeah, know, the book on that, uh, Slave Women, Slaves, Women, yeah. and Homosexuals Web. by uh, Webb. Yeah, that's the sort of the, the text people often point to. <laughs> and we can summarize it with the phrase, Come on, people! It's 2021. Right. That's right. That's, that's right. That's that's a good that's a good, a good way of summarizing it. Um, and and so I think when people talk about the argument for women's ordination being philosophically equitable to the to the argument for you know same sex marriage, that's the argument they're talking about. Is that is that trajectory argument? Because they'll just pair sexuality with male-female relationships and say, okay, well, everyone, everything's tending toward quote-unquote freedom, so this is this is also part of it. And so that's, that's where you see that philosophical connection. There are some who argue, maybe not for full egalitarianism, but for um, women's ordination, um, who would not go that far, <clears throat> who would maybe even still want to reside within a minimal understanding of headship, um, maybe call them thin complementarians, I'm not sure what the right proper, proper no word for them is, but they might also, so you don't, don't want to be confused and argue that everybody who are, who wants women's ordination is necessarily the, the bra burning That's fair. Uh, feminist who wants to burn down everything. Some of them are trying to stay within the biblical scope of, of headship. Well, that's, and that's, that's the, that's the compromise that we made in the ACNA. I mean, if you, if you, I mean, and correct me if I'm wrong, but but I, I seem to think if you are if you believe that women being ordained to the, even to the priesthood is, in fact, a rank heresy, that there is absolutely no possible justification for that whatsoever, then you're going to have a hard time in the ACNA because we allow for it. And so, so on the flip side, I should say, if you if you believe that any limitations at all, as you were saying, Matt, like we have in the ACNA, which is that the Episcopate is relate, relegated to men, which is a version of headship, which is, a, again, stretched thin, but nevertheless, still a statement about the ultimate authority in our ecclesiology is the bishop. And so essentially everyone serves under his authority at his pleasure. And so we can not allow a woman to teach over a bishop, keep impulsion um, to Timothy and Titus. And so that's how we understand this in ACNA, which is a you know uncomfortable compromise for many, and yet it is a compromise. And so I think if you if you can't abide by that, or if you somehow are trying to subvert it on one way or the other, well then you know you're not helping the cause right now because we're actually trying to figure out what it would look like to walk along this road, uh, recognizing that we, we do appreciate the tradition, you know, and the, and the history of the fact that these texts have been read this way for 2000 plus years. And yet we also recognize that um, we're going to, to make allowances that perhaps, you know, Luther and Calvin and Thomas Aquinas on down the line would have thought were, um, you know, un unthinkable because of the culture within it, which they lived. But perhaps had they lived now, you know, they would say, well, that seems like a, a elegant solution to biblical to submission to biblical authority and at the same time recognition of the cultural situation within which you find yourself. And I think that's 
that's how I present it to people. Because as I said to someone who was making an impassioned plea for women's ordination earlier, I said, um, uh, you know, sort of full throated, I said, well, look, I find it because of people like Ben Witherington and Bill Witt and N.T. Wright and people, I said, I find it plausible. It's a plausible argument. You know, I mean, it requires an awful lot of exegesis and an awful lot of uh, intimate knowledge of Greek and things that, you know, just a straightforward reading seems to uh, preclude. But I'm not surprised that many people don't find it persuasive. And so that's where, you know, I think that's just where we are with respect to the question for many um, within the quote unquote complementarian camp. And yet, as the ACNA, we actually have the opportunity to model something of a of a genuine church that holds this as a second order, you know, not doctrine, well, but but conviction, uh, because we have agreed to disagree. And so we'll see if this is possible, of course, you know, and it seems unlikely in many ways, uh, but it's mainly unlikely for it to coexist in the same church, you know, I think because churches are going to have to decide um, how they're going to comport themselves, because it does change the way that you view the world, or at least the way you view the, the Christian world is how you understand these passages, how you understand marriage how you understand the complementarity of men and women. And so, you know, there, I think that it's going to be hard to have like a rector who really disagreed with an associate, or if you had, you know, sort of a, um, a large staff that all had their various opinions on this, that's probably not for the good of the body, as it were. But I can easily see how within the same diocese, you may have various opinions. I mean, I live in one right now. And all I'm trying to do is keep the keep the conversation out in the open and sort of face to face and with actual human beings so that we don't just end up caricaturing and um, just building up these sort of monsters, you know, of our enemies on either side and encouraging the bishops to the extent that I have any of their ears to model this. If they've asked us to walk this out in our lives, well, then, you know, those uh, they, they can um, walk ahead of us and show us how we're supposed to do this. You know, how are two brother bishops who um, who disagree about whether women could be ordained to the priesthood, much less the diaconate, or even become a rector in any, all the variations, how are they living together in this um, agreed compromise? Um, and the model that will be very helpful for those of us further down the chain, <laughs> as it were. But, um, but I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. And I think that part of the hope comes from diffusing some of the, the, the rhetoric that is found in books like Jesus and John Wayne and the biblical womanhood book that is predicated upon this Again, this power dynamic, this conspiratorial, um, essentially misogyny at the heart. I mean, that's what they're they're positing, that all the men that have ever believed this or perpetuated it have essentially been um, woman hating misogynists, you know, power hungry misogynists. And it's just you know, that's a hard place to start a conversation. <laughs> you know, that's a hard place. It's like you were doing premarital counseling. You'd be like, yeah, this is going to be a long one uh, because we we're we're really far apart here. And so. You know, it's not that we need to baptize everything that happened in the past as something good and and meet and right. I mean, no one's doing that, but to have some appreciation for the fact that we're here, but across the room, call it a a world full of um, was it plastic people in a in a liquid world. You know, I mean, that's that's such a powerful phrase. I thought that it was that that in a in a in a world of plastic people where men and women don't mean anything, and a liquid world where there's nothing um, outside of ourselves in the first place, we have this stamp of God himself on our bodies and then given to be reconciled by his son to be a witness to a, a enfleshed body in a concrete world, not a plastic body in a fluid world. And that's what we lose if we reject any sense of complementarity of the sexes and God's good design. Yeah. I mean, it's it just, 
I think some of the telltale signs that patriarchy in our in our country has well well we need a, a redeemed form of patriarchy you can look at two extremes one on the one side you have women who are now entering into combat arms <laughs> the military which in most historically when you have women fighting it means it means you're utterly defeated it means you're, the walls have been torn down everything is everyone's all the men are dead and the women are just doing the best they can to defend themselves. We do it by volunteer. We 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 push them up there now, and it's a sign of our it's a sign of our of our liberation from ancient norms. And uh, on the other hand, you'll have you know grown men with Adam's apples, hairy chests, and big and, and massive muscles and biceps, body slamming women in wrestling tournaments and calling themselves women. Both sides of that is tells us that egalitarianism run amok is utterly destructive and ruinous of a society. That when men aren't taking their place as leaders, protectors, providers, then the society is sick. Mm. And women, because you know, then uh, because women are then endangered, either be by being put on the front lines for goodness' sake, or by being body slammed by men dressed as women. And that's where we are. Yeah. So, funny. I thought I, I think I agree with you in those two. I would have gone two different areas. I mean, in addition, possibly, I think that the rise of um, fatherlessness. You know, the, the number yeah. of uh, children out of wedlock uh, is, is, is definitely simply a judgment on, well, on the brokenness of men and their uh, the fallenness of the world and the, and the need for a renewed sense of at the very least complementarity, um, responsibility for men and also uh, the, the prevalence of pornography. You know, I mean, this sort of detachment again, and this this all part of a whole, but this supposed um, liberation of the world into the autonomous self that has no, um, as, as, it, as it was said, again, I just finished reading Carl Truman's book, this sort of dialogical reality, this, this relational ontology, you know, that there was a, that men did not uh, exist interdependently, I mean, independently of women. I mean, this is even the Bible already, just like men come from women, you know, <laughs> like we all are sons of someone, you know, somehow, shape or form. And so we, there was this, at the heart of the Bible's understanding of men and women is an ir- irreducible relational ontology that forces a, a sort of mutual responsibility, even if it's platonic, as we might say, in the form of of um, just cohabitation, you know, with, with fellow humans on the earth. Like there are there are um, there's a relational reality to the to the created difference between men and women that. Um, when we deny that, well, then we shouldn't be surprised that all sorts of things, um, unintended consequences arise. And so we see the, the supposed liberation of women from sex, um, you know, via the birth control and sort of no fault divorce, you know, is also coincided with pornography of the likes that people, you know, Caligula would have blushed, you know, the Marquis de Sade just um, would have thought was beyond the pale. And yet that supposedly is a victory for women, you know, and then you have men who have, um, been freed from the obligation of marriage and children who are in a state of perpetual arrested development, you know, perpetual adolescence. I mean, you go out to restaurants and you see, you know, 50 year old men hitting on 20 year old girls without any shame or guilt. um, And you say, well, this is quite a victory for the world. You know, this is, I mean, this is where we find ourselves. And it's, it's again, it's not um, it, it, there. There's a lot that are, is behind all this. It's not just lying at the feet of, you know, a denial of complementarianism. But fundamentally, it's a rejection back to the original question of of did God have a plan and a purpose and design for the 
world. Um, and the Bible, you know, our belief that, um, that we, that he does, and we can trust him and that we're wary of him and reject him is because we're sinners. But when we're brought back into a uh, faith loving relationship with him by his son, well, then we can, we can lay our pretensions and our expectations down and actually be taught from the scriptures. And what it seems to have taught the church for 2000 years and the Jews before is that there is a loving, creative and good reason why men and women are, are equal under God, but created for different roles, responsibilities, and capabilities. And if you reject that, well, then, then you're going to be uh, increasingly uh, malleable plastic person in an increasingly liquid world. <laughs> I mean, that's where you're going to find yourself. And, and so we see it. And so again, like we go back to all the time, um, I'm not interested in, in making enemies with people that disagree with me, but I am happy with, with respectful disagreement. And we all are given the challenge of, of, of submitting ourselves to scripture and then comporting ourselves, our churches, our families um, in accordance with that. And that there is a great divide and the difference between these two ways of seeing it is going to uh, result in, well, two dramatically different ways of, of ordering those things. And, you know, I'm happy for that to be the case. And I just am, am sensitive to the fact that I you know, it's often painted as, you know, the misogynist versus the liberators or the haters versus the lovers or some sort of um, rather um, dismissive and pejorative uh, accounting of this, this disagreement. And what I am just in, interested in is, is uh, holding a, fl- a light, the flame that perhaps says that some of those wonderful things that Martin Luther wrote about his wife, Katie, despite the fact that they were in a patriarchal society that was, um, you know, colored by all these things were in fact true, because there was something by the power of the spirit that brought about redemption between men and women, and not just this um, dog eat dog sort of power struggle that uh, lies at the heart of the pagan world, but not the heart of the Christian world. Yeah, I really, I really don't know what if we listen, you know, project our minds forward, imagine a perfectly egalitarian society where, where, there, where there's no distinct role differences between men and people. What, what, what do you, what do you, what do you tell your sons? I mean, what, what, what do you, how do you raise them? I mean, within their relationship with women. I mean, I tell my sons, okay, you're stronger than your sisters. There's a reason for that. You're supposed to protect them, and if I ever see you hit your sister, then I'm going to hit you—not in the face, but <laughs> there's going to be some physical consequences to you hurting your sister. Um, let's put it that way. And because you're a man, and you've made you're you're, you're being, you are made to defend women, protect women, provide for women, and lay down your life for women if necessary. And I, what do you tell? What do you? How do you? I, I'm just trying to imagine what you say to a a male, I guess, I guess you're not trying to raise a man. You're just trying to, you just have a male in your, in your household. What do you, what's the goal? Uh, I don't think there is one. Yeah. I think, I think you actually see the height of it, like in Judith Butler and some of these sort of radical sort of trans, um, transgender, uh, philosophers and sort of advocates is that there is a, that there is a program. Um, again, I just got Truman on mind, but the Philip Reif, a reef book about the, the death works he calls. I just ordered this book. It's it's on back order, but he says that um, you know that the the modern world of the death works is not just a uh, sort of augmentation of current cultural standards, but actually an uprooting and a destruction of them. Right, and I think that at the heart of sort of radical queer theory, radical gender theory is not a correction of male female roles but an actual destruction of any of the binary at all. So I think in the future, I think particularly if you take like 
Huxley's view of the future where procreation is totally removed from, you know, actual female, not that it's not by and large now, but it, it's, it's totally separate, entirely separate from female, male, female relation. Well, then if you add on top of that, perhaps something that he couldn't, he didn't intimate very much, even his, um, his book. I don't know if he could even for, even he could have foreseen uh, the transgender kind of move that we have now undergone. But, but I think that there would be an idea where, gender as a statement, uh, male, female would be just, uh, uh, wouldn't even be spoken about in the same way that in, in, um, brave new world, mothers and fathers were like a curse word. It was like, it was an embarrassing thing to talk about. That's what those, those ancients used to actually procreate. And I think that, that there is a certain view of the world, which God willing, well, it won't take place where men and women are seen equally. What do you know? Being that there are only two genders, and that you are one of only one of you, and you are whatever it is you'd like to be. And of course, where that whips out sexually is um, with whomever, however, and how often you would like. Um, and as of now, it'd be limited to people. But you know, doesn't seem to be any. As Carl Truman keeps pointing out, there doesn't seem to be any logical reason with respect to some of the radical people why that should be limited, except for current taboos. And as Freud pointed out, taboos are just the current tastes of the age projected writ large, you know, on society. And so. So, Matt, I think in the future, you don't raise, you just raise a human, you know, like a human that happens to have certain uh, testosterone levels or not. And of course, you know, at a certain point, I'm sure you could control all this yeah. in like vitro. Hanging in your closet, you can put on malehood or femalehood, depending on what you want to do that day. Yeah. And I think that's a... um if that doesn't describe uh, plastic people in a liquid world, yeah. I don't know what does. I mean, that's the, and so I think this is what we go back to it. Uh, you know, the, I was accused many, many years ago um, and I was really upset about it because I didn't understand the, I didn't understand it, but now I resemble the remark that I was a biological essentialist when it came to sort of ontology of human beings, meaning simply that I thought there was something intrinsic to the fact that you had XX or XY chromosomes, right? You know, they're like, oh, it sounds like you're arguing that to be a man is something essentially biological essential and i was like oh no what, what do you mean by that of course i would and um and i am saying that and i think that an increasing number of people are just sort of commonsensically saying that uh particularly as the transgender movement takes uh further hold of our collective uh neuroses and that uh people are simply finally pointing out the fact that you can't um you can dress up all you want and you can have as many surgeries as you like but fundamentally and ontologically you are either a male or female um, and this will be an increasingly sort of radical thing to say in the short term. I don't think long term there's a way to really perpetuate that. Um, but in the short term, as people get more and more fired up about this and and it's all part of a whole, you know, it's part of a whole because we're still arguing that God has said, you know, did God really say that you were a man and a woman? Well, yes, he did. You know, but in the garden, of course, we say maybe not. Maybe he said I really was a woman. Or maybe he said that I, since I would rather be a man, um, I could be act more like a man than a woman supposed to, or whatever the case may be. And we are the ones who have the audacity to say he has spoken. And, you know, we have heard him, however imperfectly, through our own sinful lenses. And yet we can return back to his word. And by the power of the spirit, with the, um, you know, with great fear and trembling and scripture, tradition and reason, seek to submit ourselves to what his good plan and purpose may be for our lives. And that's, 
you know, I'm not apologetic about that. I mean, I, I err and stumble and stray from thy ways like lost sheep you know, on a daily basis. But, but I'm grateful for uh, other men in my life like you. I'm grateful for Liza and my wife and other women in my life to help um, reflect and bounce off ideas and to stumble and walk forward as gingerly as possible in the hope and the confidence that God actually will lead us into something, something beautiful and true with respect to these questions. And I think that's, that's a more beautiful vision, I think, than, than seeing at the heart of all of this, just a power, power dynamic, zero sum pitched battle between, um, between the constant enemies. Yeah. I mean, I just, I've been married for 20 something years now and, <laughs> uh, I, well, no, it's going to be 20. This August, it'll be 20. If Anne's listening, I didn't forget. I know the date, somewhere in there. But but while while I don't think every male-female relationship in a, in a, in a perfect, a perfect uh, complementarian world works out in a, just a cookie-cutter role, uh, it doesn't. People, people are human beings. They live out their lives in, in individual unique ways, and, and couples do too. But in our in our marriage, you know, I found that um, Anne is and this is gonna be profound so hold on to your seats and um, Anne is not like me like, <laughs> i mean there 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 are there are things about raising children there's species that i i'm totally blind to there are aspects to what the children need at certain times that i would never have figured out um there are things that i see that she doesn't and um and that I, I, that goes down to the essential differences in our, in our sex. And it's why I need her and why she needs me. It, God, God made us and, and, and fleshed us as male and female so that looking to the other, the person who's not like us and yet like us because we're both human, we can have our, you know, compliment. That's, 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 that's why that, that, what, that's what that word means. The person who, to be really cheesy, completes you. And, and, and it, 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 when it, when it, when you, when you have two Christians who believe in Jesus, who are, who are just living their lives normally as, as Christians, that plays itself out naturally. Uh, and you find uh, uh, something beautiful that Paul says, does reflect into the world, uh, the gospel, the, the love of Christ for his church and the respect and submission of, of the church for Christ. And, and so even, I mean, there's, there's one, there's one occasion, I think, and I, I, I really despise this quote although uh the, i think the more progressive people love it the the preach the gospel always sometimes use words i despise that despise i don't think saint francis ever said it because he was well, especially since he was also like a hellfire and brimstone yeah preacher. right, right. <laughs> he's like but, look at this little bird's landing on my shoulder it's about to get consumed <laughs> in the eternal fire like right, right. you sinner i think i think <laughs> i think um, episcopalian uh female priest said it in the 1970s and it's really to Francis, you know, it's at the heart of every uh, labyrinth, too. But, right, so but if there's one thing, if there's one thing that does it, it's marriage, because you know, God. I mean, that's actually what Paul says. It does. It does. It, marriage. This this mysterious union does refer to Christ and His Church. So it does, even if you don't say it, preach in a way, because God designed it to do that. Outside of marriage, preach the gospel always, and you better use words because <laughs> your life is not that good an example. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> 
Well, that's going to be all the time that we have our, for ourselves this week. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to keep the conversation going, we hope you'll be in touch with us. You can rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Send us an email at mailbag at standfirmandfaith.com, or you can join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thank you, as always, to Matt Kennedy and to J.D. Koch. I'm Nick Lannon, and we'll be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. Mm-hmm.